Hi, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the feminist podcast that's so good, it's scary. Ha 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 Yes. <laughs> today, today we have Kellen... And Zoe. <laughs> and <laughs> we're laughing. That really got me. Thank you so much. We're, we're laughing, <laughs> but we're talking about horror. Um, the emotion, perhaps, but more specifically, we're talking about the genre. That's right, folks. It is spooky season, and SOTV is celebrating by bringing on a verifiable expert on all things thrilling. Genevieve Newman is here with us today to talk about scary movies, what makes them great or terrible, what they can teach us about the world around us, and what to watch if you are tired of seeing all the women get tortured and the people of color die. Welcome to Season of the Bitch, Genevieve. Hi, thank you for having me, and thank you for calling me an expert. You are, (laughs) yes. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, so I am a second year PhD in film and English at the University of Pittsburgh, um, which is quickly becoming the home of horror. Um, We love it. I did my master's degree at the University of Southern California um, and my bachelor's at the University of California, Riverside. So shout out to SoCal. I my my research right now focuses primarily on horror media broadly. So I've had a few things published on um, video games in the horror genre, uh, some stuff on mental illness in video games, um, and kind of like some Donna Haraway weird species eco criticism stuff in horror games. Um, right now, I'm working on a piece for In Media Res on um, a film that we'll probably talk about later called Revenge that is a rape revenge film. Um, So I don't know if you already plan to give a a warning, but I am going to be talking about rape revenge films at some point, I'm sure. So getting that out of the way at the top. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of the rundown of it. My research focuses on temporality in horror, um, representations of gender, uh, sexuality, class, race, disability, etc. And I am also a teacher, so I'm teaching seminar and composition right now, in case any of my students are listening. (laughs) (laughs) And I, in my free time off on the side, I... I'm helping with the union effort at Pitt. Um, so if you're around Pittsburgh and you were around here last spring, my face was on the side of a bus for a union Ooh. ad. Oh, yeah. amazing. We have a celebrity with us. There you go. <laughs> yes. We're all about, we're big fans of unions and grad student unions and uh, unionizing and uh, all of the above. Um, so that's awesome. And you also have a podcast that you work on too, right? I do. I have a podcast and kind of a website blog type thing. Um, So it's called Open Ivory Tower. And that really came out of my focus on um, public scholarship and like this whole public intellectual type idea where I don't just want to be doing work that stays within like higher ed. I'm really invested in doing work that gets out into the community um, because I'm doing film analysis and I want people who watch films to read my stuff, not just because it helps my ego, which it does, um, (laughs) but also because I think that critically analyzing film is important. And so that's what the podcast and the blog um, really aim to do is give people a framework for them to analyze films. Awesome. So, um, Full disclosure from our end, you are here with two hosts who are not exactly like scary movie aficionados. Um, Neither of us do mainstream horror super well, but there are different kinds of um, horror stuff that we find appealing. So like for me, um, anything that feels remotely realistic is out. 
Um, I can do stuff like the grudge, like at least if I have the lights on, because I know that like a pale child isn't going to rise up from the ground and haunt me. Um, yeah. So I can deal with that. But like, can I watch even a bad movie about like a murderer? I have a very powerful memory of watching um, When a Stranger Calls uh, at age like 15 and like not being able to sleep for basically months. Um, can, so can I watch that kind of movie? No, no, I cannot. Um there are some thrillers that I really like, especially if they're sort of explicit social commentary and are also just unrealistic enough that I know that what I'm watching couldn't be replicated in real life. So, uh, like, Get Out stands as a classic for me in that sense. Um, but, but yeah, I'm not, I am personally not, like, a huge horror person. Okay. Yeah, I definitely was, like, traumatized as a child from being forced to watch scary movies um, by a friend that I hung out with all the time <laughs> and a couple sleepovers where I was unable to sleep and called my parents to go home after watching movies such as Prom Night. <laughs> uh, I really don't like intruder kinds of movies because oh, as yeah. a kid I was, like, really paranoid about intruders. And so I just, like, I don't want to, I just can't get it out of my head. I will, like, check behind the shower curtain every time I go to the bathroom anyway. So I, like, don't need to watch that. <laughs> um, I do really love campy gore. Um, Lara couldn't be here today, but we both really love Buffy, which isn't horror, but it does have some some elements and a lot of, like, that campy stuff. Last year, I watched the Hellraiser franchise for the first time, and awesome. I really liked it, especially the first one, since it involves a woman seducing men and killing them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very Zoe. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. Something we talked about on the podcast before is, like, the way women are made just seem, like, puritanical and, like, being portrayed as, like, docile while the men are, like, violent and aggressive. So I love to see a good, like, girl boss murderer or, like, femme fatale type of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then similar to Kellen, I do go to certain ones like Get Out and Us if it's a social commentary uh, that I find appealing. But I still was like very terrified during both of those and wouldn't watch them again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that my everyday horror is waking up to discover that I'm still sexually attracted to men. <laughs> <laughs> right there with you. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, revenge. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so um, obviously, like, one of the things that we wanted to ask you about Genevieve as we got started is that, like, horror, like I said, both I, there are are kinds of, like, horror or thriller movies that I really like and some that I just, like, cannot handle. Um, And we wanted to get your take on, you know, what is what is the human appeal of like horror films or horror the horror genre sort of writ large okay so there's a few theories on this and i don't buy all of them Mm. um so we're gonna start with the one that i think is the least convincing it's this whole catharsis theory that we um as humans feel better watching other people in pain because we can look at their situation and think, well, at least that's not me. At least I'm not being tortured, right? Yeah, um, I mean, that's why I like watching things like Dr. Phil. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's my appeal to, like, that kind of show. Like, Maury. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think that that is a strong enough, like, reason for horror to be as popular as it, as it is, you know? Yeah. Um. So I think it's more, and this is... Full disclosure, I, I, as much as I dislike Freud, I like psychoanalysis. Um, I know that's terrible, but um, I buy into the psychoanalytic theory a little bit more because it's the idea that horror gives us a space to work through stuff. Mm. So uh, personal anxieties, social anxieties, um, trauma, stuff like that. It gives us a space to do that where we can be relatively safe, like physically safe, even if we're not emotionally and psychologically safe, because mm. I think horror can also be traumatizing. Um, but it, it puts us in a position where we have a little bit more control. And then from there, we can work through stuff. So that's my take on it. Like I said, there's many, many theories. Every horror theorist 
worth their salt has has tried to come up with a reason. Um, but that's that's my take. That's really interesting. And I think that like leads to another thing that was I was really excited about going into this episode, which is like horror as a means to understand society's larger preoccupations or fears. Um, I, I study history, uh, and I couldn't, I really can't go through an episode without bringing some history into it. So here it is, everyone. And um, that's why we love you, Kelly. We're getting yeah. it out of the way early. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was looking, like, I went and looked back at, like, sort of trends in horror movies, um, over time and sort of what people were finding scary at different points of, you know, like in, in especially like American history. And there's really interesting stuff that if anybody's interested, like how things start out when we are, I was looking at film specifically, but like when we first have access to film as like a popular medium, the really like just basic sort of like, um, like technical tricks that were done that were scary to people because we didn't we weren't used to seeing we they weren't used to seeing film manipulated in certain ways um then like going into the 1950s and there being these like cataclysmic doomsday scenarios or like science gone terribly wrong situations like the creature from the black lagoon or invasion Mm -hmm. of the body snatchers which was like a really interesting window into the anxieties of like an early nuclear era um and then I, I I think all of us recording this episode are probably roughly the same age, you know, like we grew up with a lot of zombie movies and I started trying to like look into what theories around that were, like what, what zombies represent. Um, and it, there's a lot of things that I found and Genevieve, maybe you have, I'm sure you have a lot better sense of this, but it seemed like a, they're a, sort of a coherent theme of like alienation. Um, whether that's between the self and the brain or the body or the fear of like samification or dronification of modern life, like under capitalism. Um, and anyway, all of this is just to like bring me up to a question that is, I guess, frame, trying to frame horror as like um, a lens for analysis. Like how do you in your work or in your day to day life use horror as a lens to understand like larger cultural shifts or moments? Um, that's interesting because I think zombies are really, uh, diverse way to get into the genre and to get into analysis through the genre Mm. because they operate differently depending on the director, depending on the era, right? Even within like, so, um, People probably are not aware of this yet, but the University of Pittsburgh just acquired George Romero's archive. And so over the summer, I was one of the three people who were doing the initial intake of it. So I have been inundated with George Romero stuff for a bit now. Um, Sorry, who is George Romero? Sorry. um, Real newbie question over here, but. Is. He is the the kind of godfather of the zombie film. So. Night of the Living Dead is the zombie film that defines the genre or the subgenre as we know it now. Mm. It was very different before. Um, it was very much tied up in like representations of voodoo yeah. before Romero picked it up. So what we know as zombie films really we get from Romero. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's who that is. Um, and I think that When we look at his work, so you've got the initial Night of the Living Dead, which is interesting from a critical race theory perspective because the lead in the film is a black man, Dwayne Jones, playing um, Ben. Um, And he is a very, what I would say, agential character, meaning he has a lot of agency. He has a lot of, like, control over the situation that they're in. Um, so yes, it's about alienation, but there's also some other power dynamics that get represented in a really interesting mm. way. Um, there's one point where he like smacks the shit out of a white dude who's being an asshole. Oh, wow. Um, when, and when and did this come out? This was, I wrote down the date for another one and not the date for this. Um, 68. 68. I want to say 68. Okay. Wow. Um, that's, that's, wow. That's crazy. Yeah, it was early. Yeah. Um, and it was very 
ahead of its time. Mm. Um, and so then we get later into the dead trilogy as it's called, um, which is more than a trilogy, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> <laughs> and we get to Dawn of the Dead, which is set in a shopping mall. And it's a critique of capitalism and consumerism, especially. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, they're they're doing different things, um, which I think is where, like, if you want to focus on one specific medium, so like film, TV, video games, or one specific subgenre, so like zombies, um, vampires tend to come up a lot in terms of representations of sexuality. Mm. Um, rape revenge films are obviously about uh, sexual assault. Um hauntings are a little bit interesting because they can go a couple of different ways but all of them provide their own framework to analyze specific social problems and moral panics um which is a Stuart hall thing Mm, uh yeah um so the moral panic is is kind of like this and i'm gonna do a horrible job of summarizing this um but it's the idea that like we construct this anxiety around a specific thing in order to uh, divert attention away from the actual problem, which is capitalism and mm. fascism. So that's really interesting. Um, so, I mean, you've, you, you, I guess sort of going off of that um, I know. And, and the other stuff that you, you talked about earlier about what you study, uh, you've, you mentioned that you study, gender um in horror and we were wondering if you could talk a little bit about how women have been portrayed in horror um and you know like uh, how women are acted how the male gaze is enacted um violence and and all of that i mean that's a big question but uh you know anything you have to say about any of that we'd love to hear (laughs) Yeah, no, that's it is a big question, but um, I think I can give a pretty basic rundown of the theory behind it. Yeah. Um, So there's two foundational theories coming out of the early 1990s. One is the final girl, which is Carol Clover, um, which she she coins the term in her initial article and then expands it in the book um, Men, Women and Chainsaws, which came out in 92. Um, and the final girl is a fairly familiar trope now, but I think it gets misused a lot. So the idea behind it is it's, she is the, the female character who survives the whole film, right? Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, she has to survive. Um, but she also has to be kind of pure in a certain way that is kind of troubling. Mm -hmm. Um, so In most, but not all cases, she doesn't have sex, she doesn't do drugs, she doesn't drink, right? She, there's a lot of stuff with costuming. So one of the prototypical final girls is Sally Hardesty in um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And she's wearing white pants through the entire film. Whereas her counterpart, uh, whose name I do not remember right this second, um is wearing red hot pants Mm. and we get many, many close-ups on her ass. Um, So there's some stuff with like costuming that signals who your final girl is going to be. Oh, wow. But the, yeah, yeah. It's really, when you start looking for it, it's really clear. Mm. Um, But the idea behind it is that the final girl is there for the presumed male audience member to identify with a woman who is in pain. Like she is, problematic in all of these ways but also very important because she serves an empathetic role right Mm. because we don't expect this like adolescent boy to be identifying with young women as they are chased and maimed and tortured and right um we just we don't think of it in that way so carol clover's explanation of that was really groundbreaking at the time oh interesting and then the other one that we get is barbara creed with the monstrous feminine in 1993 
Um, and that theory is far more psychoanalytic. She's drawing on Julia Kristeva's notion of the abject, which is this thing. It's a little hard to explain in like a snippet, but it's the idea of something that is like cast out and then also like seductive. So something we want to get rid of, but we also want it back in our lives. Um, Yeah. And so she talks about the female body as always being abject in Uh, one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. So the female body is always monstrous on some level. And that's kind of the utility of horror is to explore that monstrosity. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Is probably the the best reaction to to those two main theories. Yeah, kind of going off that question, um, I wanted to talk specifically about the use of dead girls and women in horror movies, especially when violence against women is only used to further a man's character arc and the woman who died had like little to no character exploration. Um, Obviously that's like a trope used over and over. Um, Yeah. yeah. um, (laughs) That's so I've heard it referred to as fridging. Mm. Yep. Um, (laughs) As in women has used that term. Shout out. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, shout out to the Bechtel cast. Everything I know about film, I basically know from them. Otherwise, I'm an uneducated rube. Um, anyway, continue. Honestly, no, I, same, I though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're awesome. Um, yeah, so women in refrigerators, the idea is that um, she is killed or in peril in some way, shape, or form in order to motivate the male protagonist. So I'm doing a project right now on horror comic books, and the one that comes to mind the most clearly is um, the Batman comic The Killing Joke, which is the one that gives the Joker's backstory. And at one point in the middle of the book, they the Joker shoots... Um, Commissioner Gordon's daughter and then takes all of her clothes off and then takes pictures of her in order to later drive her father insane. Oh my God. Um, And then she ends up in the hospital and they never deal with any of that. It's just like, so she's in peril in order to have this effect on these male characters because it helps motivate Batman to go find her dad who has been kidnapped. But it doesn't, like, we don't talk to her at all about it. Um, and that's something we see a lot in film, too, right? So um, you get these female characters who are there. Uh, sometimes they don't even make it into the film. It's just they're dead at the beginning, mm. right? And I can also think of this in a less conventional sense, like, in terms of the grudge, right? Our main female character like our most powerful female character is dead before the end of, or before the beginning of the film. Mm, yeah. Right. A lot of these ghost movies, woman in black, some of the others, right. The, the main female is already dead. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, I know that like one of the reasons that I have trouble or some of the horror movies that I've had trouble with, I've had trouble with because like the main sort of theme is just like violence against women. Um, And what you were talking about earlier with like that horror can be explorative, but that you also have to be in like a psychologically safe place to do that exploration. (laughs) Um, It seems like not everything, which I think gets to a point or a question Zoe had, but that a lot of like horror movies don't go out of their way to make it safe for a lot of women to do that Mm -hmm. kind of psychological exploration. Yeah, I think that's also maybe a good transition to talk about the inverse of the refrigerator girl, which is rape revenge movies. Yes, absolutely. That is, if I had to pick a favorite subgenre, that is actually my favorite subgenre. And I know that sounds super controversial and weird, but 
I think that even if it's not psychologically or emotionally safe, I think it can be really reclamatory. Mm. I think that there's like a lot of power that is possible in rape revenge films. Um, But I think it all comes down to how well it's done. Um, So one of the ones I think about a lot, which is not really horror, but it is kind of a quintessential rape revenge film is the accused, um, which was 1988. It's a Jonathan Kaplan film. Um, And it gets into this whole issue with the court system, but it keeps putting the onus back on Jodie Foster's character, right? Where it comes down to, well, you were dancing with them, you were wearing a short skirt, all of these tropes that are so damaging, right? Mm. So I think that that is the, like, if I'm going to say there's a negative example, I think that that would be it for what not to do Mm. with these films. But then I think of something like, 2017's Revenge, which is Corley Figuert. I'm saying her name wrong, (laughs) but she's French, and I only have a couple years of French, and that's just how it's going to (laughs) go. But Revenge, I think, does a really good job because it doesn't um, glorify the rape scene, Mm. but it does, it, it gives you a healthy dose of gore, towards the middle and end of the film um, that is not tied up in the rape scene itself. And there's also like more time and energy and like emotional effort given over to um, the protagonist being able to track down and kill her, uh, her attacker and his friends who are complicit and who are also responsible for almost killing her at the beginning. Oh. So it's it's giving her agency back in a way that I think is really important and powerful and maybe even empowering for the viewer. I actually watched last night Prevenge or Prevenge, um, yeah. mm-hmm. which friend and artist of the pod, Steph, recommended to me. Um, and the Revenge is not... Um, rape or violence related per se, though I can't um, tell what it is without spoiling the movie. <laughs> but the protagonist is um, a pregnant woman seeking revenge um, via murder. And just the way she was portrayed was not something I'm used to in horror. Like she had like <laughs> a full character and mm-hmm. was like not portrayed as like, being evil like she also had a lot of moments of just like being a regular pregnant woman and then like obviously the moments of being a murderous pregnant woman (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that was a movie from 2017 so do you think that um the portrayal of women in horror films has been changing are there different like tropes that are being used now or yeah i absolutely think it's changing um and this is one of the reasons it's it's kind of not maybe looked upon very well in my field, but I tend to prefer contemporary horror. I don't love some of the older stuff. Mm. And this is precisely why. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because we're seeing a resurgence of women directing horror. There have always been women in this space, but we're seeing a lot more of it. And it's it's these films are getting more traction now. Um, so like American Psycho was directed by a woman, but now I can think of at least five others that are directed by women that are in this one era that's, that we're in the middle of. And I think that that's really important, um, for representing women as whole people, giving them what, um, Avery Gordon refers to as complex personhood, which is a theory that I absolutely love, um, that is this idea that people can be complicated and messy, right? That like, it's not just about positive representation. Mm-hmm. It's about representing people the way that they actually are in their lives. And she's got this line about uh, how people remember and misremember themselves and others in their, in their circles and their communities. Right. 
So I think we're seeing more of that represented, especially among female horror directors, but also it's kind of seeping out into the zeitgeist because then I think of something like Ari Aster's Midsummer, mm. which I think also does a lot in terms of giving us an actual female character with actual like traits and complexity. And I think that he does a really good job with that. He also does a good job with it in Hereditary. Admittedly, it's not my favorite film, but mm. from a craft level and from a representation level, I think it does a really good job. Yeah, another thing kind of t- while talking about like tropes and women and girls, because um, I'm really interested in looking at girlhood and there's a lot of horror where it's like the young girls are the like villain or whatever in the movie um and specifically the use of like young girls going through puberty and which makes me think mostly of carrie and like obviously her period is like a huge plot point in that movie mm-hmm. um so i just kind of want to talk about some of the theory around like yeah young girls and puberty and like i feel like period blood is used in a lot of horror movies yeah absolutely the one that comes to mind for me is actually ginger snaps which is this great werewolf film. Um, so, and it's two sisters and one of them, as she begins to to start menstruating, she also discovers that she's a werewolf. Um, and it's, it's incredibly bloody in all different kinds of ways <laughs> from there. Um, but I think that this gets us back to Creed and this idea of like women as abject mm. and... Um, specifically because she, in in the book, The Monstrous Feminine, she writes about um, Reagan in The Exorcist. So if you haven't seen The Exorcist, it's about this young girl um, being possessed by a demon and all of the hijinks that ensue therein. (laughs) (laughs) So what Creed would say is that this comes from a much deeper uh, kind of fear of women as bloody, right? Mm. Fear of women menstruating is a, a primary driving factor in what scares men in particular <laughs> about women. <laughs> but then it also comes back to this like medieval notion and I, I say medieval, like, very intentionally here, but, like, this idea that women are, like, leaky and therefore porous and more susceptible to um, possession by demons, right? This is not a new concept or fear. Um, so I think that this moment, this this liminal transitional moment around the beginning of menstruation is important to horror historically even going back to literature um when we think about joseph sheridan la Fanu's, um carmilla which is actually the first vampire novel it is not bram stoker's dracula fun oh. fact um, everyone thinks it's dracula it is not dracula um well, you heard it here first everyone probably <laughs> <laughs> i heard it here first <laughs> Um, but also first lesbian vampire novel. Oh, hell so yeah. That. Yeah, yeah. It's not kind to the lesbians, but it's there. Oh, <laughs> maybe not. Hell yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I am of the opinion that as long as we can critique it, I will take representation where I can find it. Um, <laughs> but that caveat that we will critique it is very important. Um, but yeah, so I think that that this kind of moment of menstruation is also a moment of rupture that can be really powerful um, depending on how it's deployed, right? So if you're using it in this kind of tired way where we're thinking like the way Carrie uses it, um, the way, or rather the way Stephen King and um, De Palma use it in Carrie, where it's just this like horrific moment, right? That kind of lacks depth. Um, I think that that becomes problematic, but if we're using it in this way where it can be transformative and powerful, I think that that is 
a really great way forward for the genre. That's awesome. I love that answer. Um, So I think another question that, you know, we wanted to ask is um, how would you recommend like a feminist approach horror as a genre? What, what should a feminist know if they want to dip their toes into the world of horror films or other types of media? Um, you're going to have to pick and choose a lot. Mm. (laughs) So (laughs) there's a lot of really problematic stuff. So what I have found Um, The reason I'm able to love the genre the way that I do is I can look at a film that has like five really problematic things and one really incredibly powerful thing and just hold on to that powerful thing, right? Mm -hmm. Alternatively, you will find yourself in a position where there's almost nothing redeemable in a given film from a feminist perspective and you need to be able to find what is empowering in the critique of it if that makes sense like you need to be able to break the film down and see okay so this is doing all of these things that I don't like and so it's actually showing me a better way to do what it's trying to do right um this also comes up I was just talking to someone else about this in terms of race in this idea that like whiteness makes itself invisible right Mm -hmm. um so masculinity tends to do that as well because these are power structures and they are systemic and they are institutional and they are historical um so they tend to uh make us less aware of their very existence But seeing them blatantly portrayed in certain ways in horror films, I think, makes it easier to point to them and say, look, there it is. That's the thing I don't like. Let's work on this, you know? Yeah, that makes I mean, that that's, I think, a really great answer for anybody that, like, loves problematic stuff which is probably all of us (laughs) and like how to grapple with that um that's like maybe the best answer that I think I've ever heard for a question like that actually (laughs) thank Um, you that's really helpful and I'm gonna hold on to that yeah yeah it's also just like if you're anyone who's not like a straight white man you have to take representation when you can get it sometimes Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) and yeah and like obviously critique it as you said but yeah (laughs) few chances for representation sometimes but switching gears a little bit um i wanted to talk about queer horror films and i was really excited for this episode so i went on like the queer horror category of shutter and i picked this film that's like super campy from the 80s called i had to remember the title because it's so long sorority babes in the slime bowl bolorama uh, awesome. <laughs> Very so, cool. <laughs> the premise of this movie, a little bit, is like these three creepy, nerdy dudes sneak into the sorority house to like watch like the like naked women, and they're like being super creepy, oh, and no, they're found. I hate this. And they're found, and the sorority girls joke about killing them, and I was like, yes, I love this. That's not what happens at all. <laughs> ah. <laughs> They end up all in this bowling alley and a genie like ape villain comes out of this trophy that they like knock over um, and offers them wishes. Also, the only person of color in this film is the voice of the villainous ape that comes out of a trophy. Uh, So there's that. And then they all get to make a wish. The first guy wishes for gold the second guy wishes for like i don't know how he words it but he wants like a woman to have sex with and so one of the two women with them just like turns into this like sex object for him and it's like she like won't stop trying to have sex with him for the rest of the movie and he's like oh i don't know we should slow down even though like it was his wish and I was actually watching it with my partner, and he was like, she didn't even get a wish. She just got turned into a sex object. She didn't even get her wish. And I was like, yeah, yes. <laughs> Very proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But, like, the only queer thing about it was that one of the sorority girls calls this, like, punk girl that they meet a dyke, which doesn't feel like that counts. Um, Also, because turns out that punk girl wasn't even, uh, well, she wasn't shown to be queer. She ends up with one of the nerdy dudes that was, like, creeping on them in the end. Mm -hmm. Um, So then I thought maybe they meant it was queer in the fact that it queered any convention of what is considered to be a good movie. Um, <laughs> I was just trying to figure, I was just like, I don't know how this was in that category at all. Um, but yeah, so that's my, that's been my experience with trying to watch queer films. Oh, and I did really like, um, is it called Thelma? Zelma. It's a Norwegian, like sci-fi kind of horror movie. I am not familiar with this. Uh, okay. Off well, the top of my head. I, I, I might be, but. I don't remember. It's either called like Selma or Zelma. Oh no, it's Selma with an S, actually. Okay. Uh, Still not familiar with it, it's but one of those <laughs> names. Anyway, that is a good uh, queer, like horror esque movie. But I wanted to ask you, since you probably know a lot more about this, that based off my experience earlier today, um, is there good representation of queer people in horror? And could you please recommend some better things for me to watch? <laughs> well, <laughs> along the lines of your recent experience, I have to say, if you're going to go with something that is queer but not queer, the Babadook is a much better way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, similar thing. Did So for people who don't know, the reason that the Babadook has become this like kind of super gay symbol um, that I love, I have a rainbow Babadook on my laptop. Oh, um, yes. But is because Netflix miscategorized it um, when it when they first put it on the service. So they put it in the LGBTQ category as opposed to the horror category. So it got taken up as this kind of queer figure, um, even though there's nothing like directly like there's there's some subtext you can read as queer, especially through like a queer horror lens. Um, but there's like no no direct queer representation in the film so just wanted to drop that in there um because it is excellent even if it is not properly queer um as much as I hate that phrase I think that in terms of queer representation in film the problem really comes down to naming right and this might also be like a personal bias because I am bi and that is like a label that does not get used pretty much ever. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to find a character in a TV show or a film or a video game or a comic book or whatever saying like, yes, I'm bisexual. Yeah. Right. Um, I, at one point, it's very easy to find someone on our podcast saying, yes, I'm bisexual. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And that is where I love you all. Um, (laughs) But so I, for a little while, I was working on a publication that did not come to fruition um, on the Scream TV series on bisexuality in that. So the Scream film franchise was a big deal in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, and it's this kind of like meta horror thing that happens where it's like horror films commenting on the genre. And then it got taken up a few years back in a TV series that ran for three seasons, two on MTV and one on, I forget the network now, but it got picked up by another network and completely changed the framework and stuff um, and the characters and everything and didn't do very well. Um, But there is a character in the Scream TV series called named Audrey, played by Bex Taylor Klaus, who is non-binary, um, who is identified as bi-curious by other characters, and she does not reject that label. So it maybe is representation. I'm still <laughs> not sure. <laughs> But, I mean, you see a lot of that kind of thing, right? We see it across genres, too, though. I'm a big Doctor Who fan. Um, Captain Jack is pansexual, but they never use the word pansexual. Um, stuff like that. It it just 
Doctor Who, granted, has gotten better. That is completely off topic for this episode. But any Whovians out there, I see you. Um, and it's it's gotten better in this way in terms of representation that I think horror has not quite caught up to yet. So That's really interesting. Um, I, if there aren't a lot of, like, openly queer characters in horror, um, another, I guess a related question then is that you mentioned a queer horror lens. Um, Mm -hmm. what did you mean by that? And like, how do you think about queerness in your work if it's not explicit in a lot of the, the media that you're working with? So I think for me, this gets tricky because I don't belong to the camp, but I'm bunch of (laughs) who I'm sorry. That was a really bad joke. Um, it was great. Don't, don't apologize. Um, I, I I don't kind of fall into this idea that anything that is even slightly off kilter is queering something. Um, I think that it does always have to do with sexuality and representations of non-heterosexuality. Um, but I think that a queer lens is one that tries to complicate or subvert heteronormativity, right? So... Even if so, let's let's go back to the Babadook. It's this film about this uh, recently widowed mother trying to raise her young son, who is just can I curse? I can curse. Oh, just yeah. a fucking monster. Oof. Can you I curse mean, on this little boy? Of the bitch? You can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, but he is. He's a fucking monster. He's horrible. And mm-hmm. I'm sure for for people who have kids, they watch that and they're like, "No, that's what they're like." Um, but <laughs> as someone who uh, does not interact with children very often, I have a very difficult time watching that film. Mm. Um, but it's her dealing with the grief of having lost her husband, right? So, and there's some stuff in there, minor spoilers. There's a scene where she is like trying to masturbate and then her son interrupts. And it's really awkward and uncomfortable for her, of course, because it would be. Um, but it's like also dealing with her sexual, like sexuality in the sense of her as a sexual being, right? Um, and this monster in the film can be read as a representation of her grief and what she does or does not do with that. And the violence can be read as an extension of pent up sexual energy. If you're doing a psychoanalytic thing. Um, And I think all of this has within it, the potential to be queer. I don't think that it has to be, but I think you can read it that way. And I think that if you read it that way, it says some important things to us about what, sexuality and eroticism and love and these kinds of things like what this aspect of our selves as humans looks like and how it operates if that makes any sense yeah definitely and in your intro you were talking about that you don't just study horror film but um broader like horror media um so how do these things look in like horror comics or horror video games you were talking about. Okay. So the last publication I had was on the first last of us game and any video game nerds in your audience will already know about this, but the trailer (laughs) for the new last of us game centers, like it's got this framing narrative and granted the game's not out yet. So I have no idea how they actually handle this, if it's good or not. But the, the trailer for it, or one of the trailers for it, has this framing narrative where Ellie, who is the protagonist from the first game, is at this, like, dance or whatever. It's a post-apocalypse. Um, so it's kind of, I'm waiting to see how they set up the fact that there is a functioning community. But she's at, like, this this town dance or whatever. And they go into this, like, she's having this little conversation with her friend, friend, um... <laughs> And they go into a kiss and then we cut to all of these scenes of like combat and like it's a it's a third person shooter primarily, but there's like melee and stuff. Um, 
So it cuts to these scenes of her fighting her way through these horribly dangerous situations with people primarily. Um, and then there's also there's zombies around, kind of. Um, and then we get through all of that, and then we cut back out to the end of the kiss. And it's with her and her female friend. I might have buried the lead there. But... <laughs> Sorry. Um, so yeah, it's super gay. Um, <laughs> but it's wonderful, right? And it's this this post-apocalypse. There's these like fungus zombies, which I think is a super cool kind of multi-species. Like I said at the very beginning, Donna Haraway, like fungus and human commingling in this like strange but coexistent kind of way that is almost queer in and of itself, right? So that's happening. And then it's the 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 disintegration of society, which is also really interesting, watching how people visualize that happen. And then it's all framed by this, like, non-heterosexual kiss, which I think is really important. I think that there is an entire dissertation in that trailer that I have yet to write. <laughs> um, it is not the dissertation I'm planning to write, but you could certainly write it. Um, but yeah, I think that that this stuff like definitely comes up in other mediums. Um, I'm only just dipping my toe into comics right now, so I don't know necessarily about queer horror comics off the top of my head. But I'm positive that they exist, right? Um, in terms of stuff that probably fits that mold, um, Emile Ferris's uh, My Favorite Thing is Monsters has kind of a non-normative lens to it in terms of representation. Um, and then if we're thinking like feminist comic books that could maybe be read as queer, depending on how you're reading them, um, Emily Carroll's Through the Woods is spectacular. So that's kind of what I would say to that. That's awesome. Um, well, first of all, all of those recommendations we really appreciate. Uh, and I think maybe this leads to this is a good place to, to kind of finish the conversation um, with just a simple question, which is, what is your favorite horror film? Okay, so <laughs> and let's why, get back. Of course, to the whole, yeah, let's let's get back to the whole. You can love something even if it's super <laughs> problematic. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite horror film is the remake of I Spit on Your Grave, um, which is incredibly fucked up um <laughs> it takes all of the problems of the original i spit on your grave which is like the quintessential rape revenge film except for maybe last house on the left um but that's a debate that is still developing i think personally um maybe just in my own head i don't know <laughs> um, but i think that the remake really drives home some important points about sexual violence, right? So there's a lot of emphasis put on not just rape as a singular act, but humiliation in a way that is incredibly difficult to watch, but I think very powerful and very um, pointed. And there's also, like... It is not subtle in its implication of the police in sexual violence, right? One of the men who rapes her is a cop and then tries to cover it up later. Um, and she shoves his gun up his ass and then fires. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. So, it's a bit... <laughs> I, I don't quite know what to say about it other than it's a rape revenge film. It's going yeah. to be horrible. Yeah. That's not even the most graphic thing that she does wow. throughout the film. Um, but I think that, that the graphic nature of the revenge portion is meant to signal to us the severity of this kind of sexual violence. Right. Because we see rape so much. We see sexual harassment and assault so much in the world around us that it becomes 
kind of uh, mundane almost in the worst possible way. And so I think part of the utility of rape revenge films is because of that revenge portion of the film, it is saying very directly, this is not mundane. This is not okay. This is bad. We need to do something about this because do you see this horrible thing that you're watching right now, this gore and this this torture and this trauma? That's what you just watched at the beginning, even if you don't recognize it as such, mm. right? And I think that that's really powerful. And that's probably why I prefer the remake even to the original, because the remake does focus on humiliation in a way that I think gets more to the core of sexual violence as being more than about sex as being about so much around breaking a person down in a way that I think is important for us to grapple with. So it's not a fun film. I'm definitely not going to say it's a fun film. Don't put this on, on date night thinking that it's going to be, you know, (laughs) a, a, a nice little scare. It's, it's not. Um, it's incredibly difficult to watch and I've seen it many times. I've written and presented stuff on it and it never gets easy. It never gets easy. Um, but it's still important, I think. So that's why it's my favorite film. That's amazing. Now I think I have to watch it. Um, the way- all of the trigger warnings. All yeah. of yeah. the trigger warnings. Helen, do you want to watch it together and cuddle? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, perfect. Because okay. <laughs> I'm like, I also want to watch it, but not alone. Yeah, okay, well, okay, so it's a date. We'll, we'll make okay. that happen for sure. <laughs> Movie night. Um, the, the, I love the the way that you framed that, Genevieve, like the, the, the way that, like, the reaction gives import and makes the significance of the the first act clear um i really like that and anyway so yeah so thanks thank you also for bringing that movie um to our attention no problem well this has been super interesting um i know i've learned a lot because i came into this episode knowing virtually nothing um and like (laughs) honestly what a great way to ring in spooky season Genevieve, thank you so much for coming on. This was like such a pleasure. Um, and I've, yeah, like I learned so much and uh, I had a really great time. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful to get to talk about things that I love and care about. So thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, that was awesome. Um, as we mentioned at the top, you can um, get uh, more info on all the work that Genevieve is doing at um, Open Ivory Tower, which is her podcast and her blog. So that's um, Open Ivory Tower on Twitter and OpenIvoryTower.org. Uh, there's lots of really cool stuff up there. So we definitely recommend y'all checking it out. And we also recommend you um, checking our pages out. <laughs> checking us out and I was like actually please don't (laughs) you're not allowed to look at us (laughs) um but yeah you can find us at season of the bee on twitter and instagram you can like us on facebook kind of um (laughs) you can uh, rate and subscribe rate review on itunes uh you can give us your money on patreon that's actually the most important absolutely absolutely the most important um, yeah and make our make our lives a little less horrific uh become a patreon subscriber make yeah you, make your life a little less horrific by getting access to all our patreon episodes and getting early access to basically every episode that we put out um uh, on the main feed yeah, and we have some spooky new merch coming soon, and we're going to have some Patreon-exclusive merch that uh, the designs are awesome. Yes, so get on that while the getting is good, y'all. <laughs> All right, Zoe, <laughs> it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Yay. This was fun. I only know... I mean, I know about, like, queer film theory a little bit, but nothing about horror. So I was like, I'm just going to insert horror in front of everything, and it worked. Perfect. Well, <laughs> um, 
yeah what a what a fun episode uh that was really fun and uh go watch some spookies yeah go watch some spookies zoe and i will do the same well love you kellen i love you i love you so much bye Bitch.